Good evening. Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. Let's all stand together here uh, and over in uh, Stevens Point. And let's uh, open in a word of prayer and we'll get into the word. Father, we thank you for your word and the life that comes from it. It's quick and it's powerful. Lord, we pray that you give us insights as we look into your word that we might clearly see ourselves as we're looking in this mirror and act accordingly. Help us to glean truth so that we can uh, live more successfully in lives that will bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated here as well over there. And uh, I know here the uh, ushers pass out uh, offering buckets here. Welcome to all of you guys who also join us at uh, Small Group Studies. And people all over the world. All over the world. We are going through the uh, New Testament, starting at the book of Acts. And, uh, and uh, going through, and as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to be going in order of uh, when these various epistles and stuff have, were written. The church starts out in a blaze of glory, okay? Jesus crucified in Jerusalem, all the disciples and stuff in Jerusalem. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and everybody's pretty much just hanging in Jerusalem. <laughs> they like it there. They basically get this big Christian commune thing going. And they're all warm and fuzzy and everybody's happy about it. Eventually, uh, the gospel starts spreading out, uh, you know, in Samaria, uh, up in Galilee and stuff. But it's still pretty much the main energy is in Jerusalem until persecution comes. And then we know, boom, they get dispersed uh, as everybody's spreading to get away from the persecution. Uh, It's often been argued that if these guys would have done what they were supposed to do in the first place, which Jesus told them to go into all the world, that there wouldn't have been need for the persecution. I, I don't know that that's really true. That's probably highly unlikely. Jesus warned them that they would, uh, the world would hate them. And uh, so anyway, so they spread all over the place. And uh, the person who was doing all the persecuting is a guy by the name of Saul. And he's having so much fun persecuting the Christians that are scattering. They're like little cockroaches and they're trying to go get them all. They were spreading way up here into, some, uh, into Syria. He goes up into Damascus so that he can arrest more Christians. On his way up there, he gets converted. Dramatic conversion as he's confronted with the living Christ and the reality of who Jesus is. Well, then he immediately starts preaching like crazy here. Then he has to run for his life because they're trying to kill him. Goes down uh, back to Jerusalem, uh, uh, eventually, um, he uh, goes away with, uh, uh, what's his name? Barnabas. <laughs> to Tarsus. They're hanging out there. Then Tarsus goes, or uh, <laughs> Barnabas, can't think of his name, goes all the way up, in, up here to uh, uh, Antioch, which is off the chart here. We'll eventually get to it. Uh, and he's so excited about what's happening over there, so he goes back and gets Saul, and they go up there. Then we read where uh, Herod, who's the king of the area, but they're all kind of like, you know, the the Romans would come in and they would conquer an area and still allow them to have some degree of autonomy. It was smart on their part. It's hard to control everybody all over the world, but they would control the guys who had the control. So we had the king uh, Herod, and uh, we read how Herod gets in a big fight with these guys up here in Tyre. He goes to Caesarea. Uh, he gives this big speech. And uh, this is right after uh, 
Herod had James, the first, one of the, the first apostle to be killed, tries to kill Peter, but God does a miracle, gets him out of there. Uh, Herod comes up here, has this big uh, speech that he gives, and all these people up here, they're trying to suck up to him, so they say, oh, it's the voice of a god, it's the voice of a god. And he goes, well, yeah, I am rather godlike, you know. So he goes to his head. The Bible says God judges him. The guy's eaten up of worms and dies. And I mentioned last time, it's better to die and be eaten of worms <laughs> than to be eaten of worms and then die. I don't know what he had, but he had a bad case of something, and it had to be a miserable death. Uh, so that's what happened there in Caesarea. So then after all this settles down, um, where we left off in uh, uh, the uh, book of Acts is right after Herod dies, and the church has a degree of freedom at this point. Uh, it's still overwhelmingly Jewish people. They're Jewish Christians that make up the church. They're hearing about you know, the Samaritans got in on the deal, but they're kind of half-breed Jews, so they let them in on it. You know, they heard about Damascus and Antioch and stuff, and, you know, uh, over here in Joppa, and, and, and uh, there's some non-Jews starting to become uh, Christians, but at this point, it's still primarily a, uh, a, a Jewish religion, Christians, or Jews who put their trust in the Messiah, okay? So then uh, we also learned that when Peter got released from prison, he told everybody, make sure that you go tell James and everybody what's going on. Uh, well, that's the first time we heard about this. It wasn't James the Apostle, because James the Apostle had been killed by Herod. Now, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's the one now who becomes the, uh, the leader in terms of uh, administrative decisions and stuff in the church. The apostles themselves, I know, not to pick on Catholics, you know, but their whole thing that Peter was the first pope and they were all popes and stuff like that, making all these decisions. It's really not exactly accurate. They were clearly major players in the early church, but they didn't want anything to do with administrative decisions at all. In fact, the first sign of there being problems in the church, remember they're arguing about who got, whose widows got more food or supported money than the other, and uh, all the apostles said, listen, man, we don't want to deal with this stuff. We just want to preach the gospel and get into the ministry of the word. So they created deacons, and the deacons handled all that stuff. And eventually, somewhere along the line, we don't know exactly what happened, now we read of James is like the head guy over the church, and he's the one dealing with this stuff. Uh, the apostles themselves never really got into it, uh, and the only real significant writings from the apostles are, and the epistles are, we have two letters from Peter, which we'll eventually get to, and then John uh, wrote, but a lot of them, none of them had really written much of anything. But... Uh, they're following the example of who? Jesus. Jesus didn't write anything either. Not anything. And uh, so they, they were, all they stayed about was preaching the gospel, and they, you know, history says they went all over the place. And I'm sure these apostles were quite the powerful preachers, wouldn't you think? <laughs> and the miracles they must have had, really stunning. So anyway, so now we're in a pause uh, during this, and then we read the first epistle as far as uh, we can tell, most Bible scholars agree that the first epistle is the letter of James. And that's where we stopped in Acts and we went over to James. We got through the first uh, chapter uh, last week. We're going to pick it up in chapter two. And remember, he starts out saying he's writing this letter to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He's writing to Jews, Jewish Christians. But again, from their viewpoint, 
the bulk of Christianity were Jewish people. They were just starting to get their head around that not, I guess, you know, remember uh, when Peter went and uh, in the book of Acts and he goes into this Gentile's house and they all get saved. When he got back to Jerusalem, they got on his case. What are you doing going into a Gentile's house? He says, dudes, I'm telling you, I had this vision and these people get saved and they all went, wow, I, I guess Gentiles can be saved too, you know? But it's still... That wasn't the end of the question. This is going to build. This is going to be a big deal. It's just starting to mess with their heads. But at this point, it's still kind of just on the edges. Uh, eventually, of course, it all becomes Christianity goes wild among non-Jewish people. And of course, right now, we're, we're doing all the stuff on the Holy Land. Eventually, the map turns to here. The Holy Land stuff is here, all that stuff that we're looking at. But Christianity <laughs> spreads like crazy all around here in Rome and through Europe and, and all over the world. So predominantly, uh, it becomes non-Jews. And we'll, we'll deal with all that when we get there. But anyway, so at this point, he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, Jewish Christians, and he's writing the letter. Now, one of the encouragements, I've always been a fan of James. I, I told you last week, I think, uh, when I was a young Christian, I had memorized the entire book of James. I always really liked it. I could quote it verbatim from the beginning to end. I can't do it anymore. I can't even find my keys now. But, uh, you know, was, I, I really liked it. Uh, but I had never, you know, when I did that, did not realize the order. Because you don't know the order of these things until you start looking historically and trying to find out the order. Because the Bible, other than the New and Old Testaments being in order, the rest of it's like a big, ah, it's all out of order. Uh, Genesis is in the right place. <laughs> Revelation is in the right place. <laughs> uh, the uh, Gospels, that's the beginning of the New Testament. That makes sense. But everything from there on is just scattered all over the place. Apparently, James is the very first thing. Now, the encouragement about that is, you know, oftentimes you hear about the early church and how fabulous they were and how incredible the first Christians were. And we need to be more like the first century church. And why can't we be more like the early Christians and stuff and 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 part of that's true. But when you read James, you can tell that the early church already has some issues. Uh, and then we don't feel so bad about ourselves. <laughs> As I was going through this week again, I thought, all right, I'm starting to feel better, you know, because he's right away, he starts dealing with problems. They started having problems right away. It wasn't just remember they started fighting over, you know, which widows got whatever money. That was the first recorded argument. But they're having issues. Uh, because just because Jesus comes in, he changes you from the inside out. But that's a bit of a process, and it kind of takes a while. Our whole journey of faith, and while you're here studying the Bible with me, and, and I, I applaud you, this place should be full, but uh, we want to get the word of God in us so it changes the way we think, because you're still affected much the way that you thought even before you become a Christian. And our, part of our journey of faith is to get that kind of changing the way we think mentality going. So anyway, um, James is writing, he's kind of writing, he writes in, in bits and pieces. Whereas much of the writings of the New Testament, these letters are, they have quite of a flow to it in, in uh, dealing with issues. And stuff. Well, James is just like da-da-da-da-da-da-da, every other f- uh, uh, you know, uh, verse is kind of different. It's kind of like the Proverbs of the New Testament. So anyway, so we're going to pick it up at chapter two. And now, and remember, this wasn't written in chapters, but just so we can find out where everything is. So at this point in the letter, he starts dealing with a problem that the church is having. And the problem is they're showing favoritism. 
okay? People who have money and status and power, they're getting more attention than poor Christians. So James, again, it's a little encouraging to know that they were still screwed up <laughs> as much as we can be sometimes. Now, this is the early church, our first Roddy, and right away, we already see that they struggle with stuff. You know, life would be easier if it weren't for people, right? So anyway, we got people, we got to deal with people. God loves us. I don't know how or why, but he does. So he writes in, in uh, chapter two, verse one, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Clearly, this is a Christian perspective, but to Jewish Christians, you shouldn't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, uh, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those to those who love him. But you've dishonored the poor. And he says, what's crazy about this, is it, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And then he says, if you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, now right away, remember, he's talking to Jewish Christians. And right away starts making reference to the law. They still kept the law. They did. Uh, and the big fight that we're going to get to in Acts is a lot of these guys still thought that the Gentile Christians like us coming in should also have to obey the law. They eventually decided we don't have to, thank God. But this, this isn't decided yet. Okay? And even when they decided that we don't have to obey the Old Testament law, they still did. It's not like they ever just said, oh, praise God, we don't have to obey the law anymore. They still uh, held on to it and, uh, and still had their faith and trust in Jesus, but obeyed all that stuff. So he says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, and, and this is concerning other people, love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convinced by the law as law breakers. And... Uh, he goes on to say, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you should not murder. And if you do not commit ad adultery, but you do commit murder, you still become a lawbreaker. Now, you've got to be a little careful sometimes when we look at these things. What, what he's trying to say is uh, if you break any of these things, then you now become a lawbreaker. He says, if you break one, you've broken them all. It's not exactly the way we would think. In other words, you, you're really not guilty of adultery because you stole something, <laughs> okay? All he's trying to say is because they were really sticklers on, I do not break the law. And what he's saying, you know, you're supposed to love your neighbors yourself, uh, and you're not doing that, then you're breaking the law, therefore, you are a lawbreaker, which would really shock them. They don't want to be lawbreakers. It doesn't mean a whole lot to us. Because, you know, we're a little, little more conscious of the fact that, you know, we're all pretty bad sinners. 
<laughs> by the grace of God, you know, it's amazing we're not in jail, half of us, all right? And some of us have been in jail. Anyway, so uh, uh, to them to say, you know, hey, you, you don't do this one thing, you're breaking the law, therefore you're a lawbreaker. Oh, I can't be a lawbreaker. So he's really trying to jerk their tr- chain, say you have to love everybody and don't show favoritism, all right? And then he goes on to say, speak and act as those who are uh, going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Now he's implying the law of grace uh, and stuff. And they're kind of interchanging the two. But don't forget, they still were pretty, pretty strict about obeying the uh, Old, Just, Old Testament law. Uh, so act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And man, you want to be merciful to people. You want to cut people slack. Why? Because you don't want to be judged without mercy. We're all going to be judged. We'll be at the judgment seat of Christ, you know, not really looking forward to that because then we, we all have to give an account and, you know, we all have our issues, one or two, or maybe we weren't quite being what we should be. We all have to give an account someday. That's why we need to live the best life that we can, not to save ourselves, but to honor God, and we have to give an account for our lives. So, and that's why you want to be merciful to other people, so that God will show you mercy. Everybody catches that, right? That's why you need to forgive people so that God will forgive you. The Christian who goes around saying, I have a problem with forgiveness, I can't forgive people, are in a really bad place. Clearly, you don't understand Christianity 101. You need to forgive people so that God will forgive you. You say, are the two tied? Yes! Remember the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Jesus went on to say right after that, specifically, in no uncertain terms, if you do not forgive people, God will not forgive you. So it's not even a debate as to what this means. So it's a big stinking deal. I know people struggle with some people who just drive you crazy. I get it. We all have these people in our lives. But you still have to let it go and you gotta show them mercy. Why? Because someday you will want mercy. Unless, you know, I guess there's some people that I guess their lives are so close to perfect. I mean, I don't know what the rationale is. That they think, well, there's nothing, I don't ever do anything wrong, so they feel free and, you know, choking everybody else around them. I don't know what they're thinking. I I do not have this issue. I need all the mercy I can get. I have issues, all right? Uh, and when, on that day, I want God to cut me a lot of slack because I was careful to cut other people. So that doesn't mean you give up on the standards of God's word, but you still, you hold up the standard, but you live in mercy. So he's trying to tell people to do that. Mercy, he says, triumphs over judgment, all right? All right, now he changes the subject again, and he gets into this thing about faith and deeds, what you do and what you don't do. Now, this is a big deal because, you know, again, he's writing this early and we haven't got a whole lot of real strong written argument about what faith is, but, but they understood it. Um, that we're saved by grace. Paul eventually writes this and, and without any question. You can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough to think that you can get into heaven. There's people who think. You know, well, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not such a bad person. They think that on that day, God's going to kind of just weigh the balance. And if you're a little bit better than you were bad, then you get into heaven. That's not how it works. Because the balance isn't like this. It's like this. <laughs> we're a mess. And there's no way, there's nothing you can do to bring that up. 
That's why you need grace. These guys understood that because these are people who lived under the law and realized the intensity of how hard it is to obey all that. But uh, um, at one point in the history of Christianity, and uh, again, we're Protestants, and I, I don't mean to pick on Catholics and stuff. They're, they're you know, wonderful people and stuff, and many of them are, uh, take their faith very seriously. They aren't devout Christians. We disagree about a great many things, but even among Protestants, we disagree. <laughs> you know, Baptists disagree with Pentecostals. Pentecostals disagree with Lutherans. So it's, you know, you still... You can disagree without being disagreeable and mean and nasty. But clearly, uh, at one point, and some would still even argue today that a lot of uh, uh, Catholic thinking is you just have to be better than you are bad and that you earn God's forgiveness by what you do or what you don't do. Uh, Many of them would argue that's not what they're saying, and and I'll cut them slack on that. Uh, But history is absolutely clear that at one point, it got really out of control. And that's what gave birth to the Reformation. And that's why Martin Luther came along, and the Lutherans, and they all said, this is crazy. And there was this big break in Christianity in Europe. And the big argument was over primarily that issue, that you can't just be good enough. So what, the, what they were teaching people is that you, you know, you're saved by what you do. And if you can be good, better than you are worse, then that'll save you. And then on top of that, uh, they would sell what were called indulgences, which is you could literally, this is how they built, I don't know if you've ever been to Rome. You ever been to Rome? I mean, it's gorgeous. You go to the uh, Vatican and stuff, it is breathtaking. It is, wow. If you ever get a chance to go, it's hard not to be impressed. It is incredible. I've been there many times. Uh, But uh, all that was built to a great degree from this period in history (laughs) where they were selling indulgences, which they admit today they should have been done and, you know, whatever. But what they were basically saying is if, you know, it would be like us saying, if you give, you know, $1,000 to a Go Beyond campaign, uh, we'll give you a document that forgives you of your sins. Which would probably be good for raising money for Go Beyond. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, but that, you're not supposed to do that, but that's what they were doing. And they were going in all over the place and they were selling basically for, not only were you had to work to redeem yourself, but then that wasn't enough. Even that wasn't enough. And the only way is if the Holy Father, you know, uh, would give, right, give you a document saying that you uh, have your sins forgiven as of this state and you can do that for a price. I mean, it really had gotten out of control. Even they, by and large, his Catholic historians will admit, yeah, it was bad. They still don't think there should have been the big split. I get it. Of course they don't because they, they wanted it all together. But uh, so anyway, this was a major sore point with Martin Luther and that was the big split. The reason I'm bringing that is because Martin Luther hated the book of James. And he was convinced that the book of James should not be in the Bible because of what we're about to read. But people tend to overreact to stuff. It's human nature. Even as wonderful as a guy like Luther was, uh, we all have our issues. And people tend to just, you know, if you're, you know, this pendulum swinging here, we try to fix it by swinging the pendulum way over here. You know, but Christians have struggled with that for Ever. I've always tried to argue as best we can, why don't we just bring the pendulum to the middle? We don't have to go here just because it's over here, all right? Lots of examples of that, but we won't get into that. So 
he reads here where James argues that if you can't show that you're doing the right things, then you have no faith. So what he's saying is faith without works is dead. It's not real faith. Of course, Luther and those guys in that environment, I mean, they didn't, they didn't like that. They, you know, what are you saying? We have to try and earn our way to God. And that's not what James was saying here. What James is saying here is absolutely perfectly legit. And that is this. We are saved by grace. You can't earn it. But if you are truly saved, you will do the right thing. Right? Now, we have lots of Christians today and a lot of, you know, faith preachers on TV and stuff like that who don't seem to have the big, big grace guys who still have a problem with this issue who think as long as you believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter what you do. You can do anything and it doesn't matter. It's all grace and you can rape, steal, kill, run over cats, eat your dog, neighbor's dog, whatever. It doesn't really matter because God loves everybody and it's all about grace, 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 grace. And that way you have millions of Christians who live like barbarians but they love Jesus and they go to Christian concerts. Oh, all right. Uh, I have an issue with those people. I think they're wrong. If you have real faith, it will change the way you behave. Somebody say amen. That's when you get changed. And now you start doing the right thing. And all James is saying is, look, if you really got this, it will change the way you act. That's what the argument he's going to make right here. Again, to these guys and you can certainly understand at that time in the church history, they were real sensitive. <laughs> but Martin Luther had a fit over this. He added, God, James, that shouldn't even be there. Oh, what kind of Bible is there? So, anyway, he lost the argument. Here we go. What good is it, James Wright, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Well, from the context of, yes, it's our faith that saves us, you can see where the argument comes up. Can such faith save them? And those who are just absolutely into all that matters is that you believe and have faith, that is what he saves you. And Paul, at some point, writes that and makes it very, very clear that's what saves them. But I don't think that's what James was trying to say, that you can earn your, your faith. What he's saying is what good is it to say you have faith but no deeds? Is that real? Suppose a brother or sister, uses an analogy, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. The person can barely survive. And one of you says, you know, brother, just go in peace, praise God. Be warm and well-fed. I'm praying for you, brother. I'm praying. We're behind you, brother. Yeah, we're so far behind you, you can't see us, but we're really behind you. All right? But then doesn't do anything about the physical needs. What the heck is that? What kind of faith is that is what he's saying. Just because you say and you feel and you believe the right things, but you don't do something to help people, have you really been changed in the first place? Okay, In the same way, he says, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And that is absolutely true. And even Paul, uh, when he teaches on this, brings that out. He says, we are saved to bring forth good works. We're not saved by those works. But once you become saved, you've got to do some stuff. And we need to lead good lives and all that kind of stuff. And then someone will say, well, brother, you know, you know, uh, you, know you have faith, uh, but I have works, you know. Do we have different ministries? And he tries to separate it. He says, show me your faith without what you do, and I will show you by my faith by what I do, which is his argument, okay? You believe there's one God. Good! Exclamation point. He's being sarcastic, by the way. 
I read this Sunday, didn't really point that out, but he's being sarcastic. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Oh, we believe in God. Well, the devil believes in God. How's that working out for him? All right? Just believing isn't enough. All right? You need to show acts. Whenever I speak to single people, I always try to point this out. You know, these girls get these little heathen boys that come to church and they finally say, oh, oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, praise God for getting married. I said, well, you might want to wait and see if that's stuck first. <laughs> you know, you know, you might still be an axe murderer or something. You know, I want to wait and see if this is really taken hold. But he believes in Jesus. The devil believes in Jesus. All right? You don't want to marry his cousin. And, and some of you have. All right, so, uh, so he says, it goes on. He's being rather strong here in verse 20. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And then he goes right away into the Old Testament teaching because they all, were all very familiar with the Old Testament. The Greeks and the uh, Romans, everything, the Italians and all these people, they wouldn't know what he's talking about because they had no basis. But right away he goes back to Old Testament teaching because they're all Jewish people. They all know these stories. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Okay, God says, sacrifice your son. Well, he ties up the son, he's ready to sacrifice, and God steps in and out, and I just wanted to see if you'd be willing to do anything and not even withhold your own son. So it was his actions that proved his faith. So again, what James is saying here is absolutely true. He's not being, despite what Martin Luther thought, and I can understand his sensitivity to it, uh, it's not that you're earning your salvation. Verse 22, he says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was filled, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. And you can imagine how inflammatory it was to these guys at that time in Christianity that were really fighting over this issue. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So again, in no way, certainly, and that's why it was part of the Christian text and no one's, despite Martin Luther's, objections, we did not remove it from the Bible, and it's the first epistle and stuff, this is not contrary. If you're having a big argument about faith and works, you can see how they would, someone who's arguing, this is part of what you do, and they would shove this in his face, and, you know, but I think they're just, it, you know, that's the thing, when people are on extreme ends, it's hard to have a conversation. It just is, you know, that's why it's good to get someone else who isn't quite as intense about things. And, and I encourage this all the time. If you're having a big fight with anybody and you can't settle it, you know, you're part of the church. You should be able to come to someone in the church, one of the pastors, elders, whatever, and say, you know, can you help us? We're, we're having an issue. Because when you're, and you, we all know this, right? You know, are you married? <laughs> you know? We see it this way. No, I see it this way. And then really the reality is it's, it's, it's here. Okay? You know, if you're on different ends of the elephant, you know, it's a different experience. All right? It is. But it's still an elephant, right? Okay? 
one could say, you know, well, you know, the only thing come out of it is a little tiny tail like that, and the other one, no, it's a great big tail that goes like this, you know, and it's still the same creature, so. <laughs> Invite people into your life. Help you settle your crazy arguments. It's good for you. All right, now he changes the subject again and starts dealing with an issue that he touched briefly on, uh, which is the tongue. The tongue gets us in all kinds of trouble. And he says this, now, now not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers. You know, I want to be a teacher, I want to teach the Bible, I want to be in charge of this. Well, you need to be a little careful here because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Like that's what I need. You know, <laughs> that's why the mercy, <laughs> okay. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who's never at fault in what, he, in what they say is perfect and able to keep their whole body in check. And then he uses this analogy. When, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. So it's all just, just right there and you can control all that power in that animal. Or take a ship as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder. And it's the rudder and where that is that determines where this big ship goes. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of your body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. And I think we've all had that experience. Things raging out of control because of something we said. Uh, the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and, it, and is itself set on fire by hell. So it's, it can really, and uh, you know, anyone who's been on this planet for <laughs> not very long at all knows that you can really screw things up because of what you say. Uh, the thing is, is you probably still will screw things up. <laughs> what you say, what he's trying to do is be careful. Be careful. We still all do it. We want to make it, but just be careful. Watch what you say because it can make your life really miserable. Uh, better to have not said something and wish you had than to say something and wish you hadn't. <laughs> it's one of those genies you can't get back in the bottle. And uh, there's people who've lost their jobs because of something they said. There's people who've lost their marriages because of something they said. There's people who've lost big financial deals just because of something they should have said. You know, these stupid politicians are always crashing and burning because of something stupid they said. Unless you're Trump, apparently it doesn't bother him. Uh, <laughs> that's why I like him. Go! You can say anything and survive. It's an encouragement to me. Okay, so... So it goes on with his analogies. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. Man, just go to SeaWorld. It's amazing. They can tame anything. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Doesn't mean we're all doomed, but just his point is be careful. You're, you know, it's like... It's like a live wire. Be careful. <laughs> if you touch the wire, all right, uh, and you learn to be careful. Sadly, most of us learn by touching the wire. It's like a kid, you can explain hot to them all day long, but they'll never understand hot until they get burned. 
And then they go, hot, 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 hot. It's one of the first words they all learn. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with the same tongue, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursings, my brothers and sisters. This should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Clearly not, although that is what happens with us. My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives and a grape fine bear figs? No, neither can salt spring produce fresh water. What he's trying to say is, as we praise God, we should be able to bless God and bless those who are made in the image of God. That's the standard. That's what we go for. They had issues with it. Again, this is encouraging to me. These are the first century Christians who have seen miracles, the kind of stuff you and I would pay big money to see. And I mean, this is early in the church. This is before anybody's really screwed up or jacked up at all. And they still are having their issues. It is what it is. Despite this wonderful thing of grace that happens in us, we still have our problems. You know, we like to favor people over other people. We say things we shouldn't say, you know, all this kind of stuff. So even some of the most spiritual people in the world still struggled with these things. All right, now he changes the subject again. Because that's what he does. He phrases. He changes the channel. Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, that would be me, Pastor. I'm full of great wisdom. I'll tell you how I'm full of great wisdom because I know so much. Well, it's interesting what James is trying to set up here is wisdom isn't really so much about what you know as it is who you are and how you conduct yourself. So he says, if you're wise and understanding, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny, about it or deny the truth. Such, and I love the quotes here, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is unearthly, unspiritual, even demonic. For where you have envy and self-ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And oh, good Lord, if that doesn't describe a whole lot of Christians. Who get mad at their church? Maybe some of you gotten caught in this in other churches. That's how you wound up here. Okay, mercy and grace, but stop. You know, Getting mad, us stuff. You know, I disagree with that pastor. You know, he said such and such, and I disagree. And I know the Bible. I'm full of wisdom and insight. And that should never happen. And you organize a bunch of people, start a big split. Your... They will go to the grave arguing that they were just doing the right thing because we have that wisdom. We understand what the Bible says about chickens. What are this is our chicken? We believe chickens should be handled a certain way, and this church isn't doing the proper chicken thing with their chickens. And we get all nasty and stuff like that. And what James is saying, look, smarty pants, if you're full of dissension and you're arguing and you're splitting and causing all kinds of, that wisdom that you think very well might come from hell. Even though at some point it still could be argued to be the right thing. Because it depends on how you, true wisdom. Well, let's keep reading it. Why, why should I put words in James' mouth? But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive. I, that, that pastor can't tell me what to do. Really? It's right. <laughs> I disagree with the carpet that's in the church. 
Well, I'd, I'd go with you there. <laughs> it's like a bad acid trip in this place. We've got to fix this thing someday. It's not cheap. That's why we haven't done it. Someday you're going to walk in here, and it's going to be a neutral tone, and I'll go, praise God. There's Christians who argue. They split churches over the fight over the color of the, the carpet. They wanted blue carpet in the church, and we wanted red carpet, and they'd just yell and scream at each other. And I know what God wants. And they argue about music, musicians, choirs, programs in the church. Man, oh, you want to start a fight in the church? Just change one of the programs you all love, which we try to avoid because we know what comes with it. But, uh, but sometimes we do it anyway because we feel we got to do it and just watch people go nuts. Just mad. I don't think we should do that. You know, one of our goals just at this campus, it doesn't affect you guys out there, but we have the children's ministry over here and then other children's stuff over there and they're all running back and forth. What we want to do is switch this thing around where all the kids' stuff is on that end. All right, that's a goal that we have here. And someone will get mad about it. I promise you. <laughs> well, I don't like that. I, I, don't, you know, I don't have kids over there, and I like just doing it here. It was closer to walk here, and I don't want to walk all the way down the other side. <laughs> Good Lord, check your medication. And so smart, and I know better, and I, this is a better thing to do, and I understand these things because I have a lot more wisdom. And... See, James would look at the way you're acting Listen to what you're saying, and it would go nowhere. You might be right, but that kind of wisdom that you're showing, that's bad wisdom. might even be from hell, he says, demonic. Because the wisdom comes from heaven, first thing is it's pure, it's peace-loving, considerate, submissive. And submissive means you get to do what you want to do, and I don't get what I want. It's <laughs> a real exciting one, isn't it? Whee! Let's have a submission party. Whee! Full of mercy and good fruit. Impartial. <laughs> Impartial, these people are not. Oh, my goodness. And sincere. You know, I always feel bad for these people because, you know, they've been in our church and we, you know, I have a ministry. I eventually tick people off. And, uh, you know, and then they, they stay mad for years. They're just mad for you. And they, you can see them jump from church to church and church out there and they're just, just empty, lonely souls. I feel bad for them. We're not mad at them. I mean, get over it already. Stop. It's that important that we had to do it just exactly the way you wanted to do it. You know, watch out for that. And I promise you, the devil knows how to get you mad. He knows how to get you. All of a sudden, look at smiling at me. Praise the Lord. It's because I ain't changing something you like. That's why who really loves you. And some of you are great. We change stuff that you, you know, there are people in this church, God bless them. They uh, completely disagree with me on some issues. And they just smile about it. And they're very nice. And, uh, you know, they just shake their head. I see them in the church. I love these people. You know, I can tell when I'm stretching them because they sit in the back going like this. Yeah, but they never get mad. They just disagree. There's things that are just like the little talk on Sunday about Halloween. You know, I think it's stupid. But there's people that they're really into this. And uh, <laughs> were you there when you went to the one lady and asked what she thought? She just said, 
Pastor and I have different ways of looking at things. <laughs> Which what? I mean, she's a nice lady. I knew it. I'm standing waiting to see what she's going to say because she's sitting there going, you know. But, you know, there's issues that are really important. It's the fundamental faith issues. Then there's a little piddly snot like who dresses up like a squirrel and goes get candy from their neighbors. It's not to me an issue to go to, to the carpet on. Anyway, peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Check, check yourself, all right? Check it, don't it? It's okay to fight for what you believe. And I don't have a problem with people fighting. I really don't. I don't have a problem with people yelling. I'm Puerto Rican. We yell for just the sport of it, okay? But at some point, you gotta you know, back off a little bit. Okay, make your case, make your argument. I disagree with you. Okay. And just at some point, you gotta be able to yield, don't get to the point where I will not yield. I will not yield. Because I'm so right. That, man, that's just a bad place. Now, clearly, if somebody in this pulpit starts saying Jesus really isn't the son of God, we would have issues with that. All right? There's some things we will not yield on. But where the kids are, what songs we sing, and you know whether it's a polka or whatever, who cares, Right? We should do more polkas in this church. You don't know, sit down, you Puerto Rican. Because you weren't here Sunday. So we got this salsa. Were you guys in church Sunday? We got this cool salsa. Like, oh yeah, hallelujah. You know, jamming all over us. And there's a whole row of Latinos up here. And they're like, mm-hmm, yes. Woo, they're just kicking. And I look at the rest of y'all and they're all go. <laughs> Seriously, you can't even move? There's too many white people, for heaven's sakes. So I told you, well, no, we need to do a couple polkas. And then they'll start moving. I, mean, I don't know, I'm just teasing you. <laughs> it was funny though, you should see what we see. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Before everybody leaves the church. Uh, now he goes into people fighting. <laughs> Again, first century Christians. This is early. It's the best it has ever been. And they're having issues. So, you know, we gotta, we gotta give each other grace. People get mad about stuff. Again, I don't get a problem with people getting mad. Just make your case, yell, scream, you know. If you gotta stay away for a couple of weeks till you can re-get it, then fine, but just be part of the family. So he says, now what causes fights and quarrels among you? Fights and quarrels among you? These are first century Christians. They shouldn't be fighting a quarrel about anything. Why would anybody fight about stuff? He says, well, these fights and quarrels pop up because don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. Now, I don't know what he's talking about. I assume he's being exaggerated. I can't imagine actually killing people. I don't know what, what he's talking about, but he's either, either mad. Now, he could be coming from the teaching of Jesus that if you hate a brother, it's the same as killing him. Maybe that's what he's talking about. You allow yourself to get in a place of hatred with people. Uh, uh, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. And, uh, you do not have because you, no, I'm sorry, you do not have because you do not ask God. All right, so of this, there's no question. Uh, what people get upset about is unrealized expectations. That's what makes people mad. Always has, always will. And quite frankly, uh, I think a lot of the stuff you know, that couples struggle with, because I spend so much time working with couples and traveling around the world talking about this stuff, I absolutely am convinced 
that why so many people are upset in their marriages, the ones who are the most upset, have very unrealistic expectations. They, they, they're just, God bless them, they're delusional. Yeah. <laughs> they are, they're just nuts, some of these people, you know? Uh, I've had them come into my office. They're mad as a hornet. The world is coming unglued. All right, tell me your problem. And they tell me their problem, and I go, what else? That's it. That's it? You just described my marriage, you know? But we're not going crazy over it, right? But there's people who go crazy because they bought into this idea that a true godly marriage is an unending state of nirvana, of peace. They're smoking marijuana or something. I don't know what these people are doing. What the? My husband irritates me. Okay. What else? That's it. That's it? <laughs> so I had this one lady come to my office once. I got to confess my sin, Pastor. I thought, okay. We all like that, right? We're all, shut the door. Let's see what you got. All right. <laughs> Nothing gets people's more attention than I got to confess a sin. Well, yeah, what, what would that be? That was just this. You know, was, <laughs> oh, yeah, now we're talking. Not a little entertainment. Let me get a Coke, a little popcorn. Okay, what you got, baby? So uh, she sits down and so what is it? She says, I scream at my kids. And I went, and? She goes, that's it. I said, do they deserve to be screamed at? Yes! I said, then scream at them. She says, all my girlfriends tell me that's a terrible sin. Of course, she's, you know, it's these Latinos, you know, these, huh? Puerto yeah. Actually, she's Italian. They actually get madder than Puerto Ricans. That's Italians, they go nuts. So she's yelling. And uh, I said, all your, oh yeah, I belong to this Bible. <laughs> I don't mean to be mean here, but I, just, I already picked on you with the polkas, but why stop now? <laughs> so uh, I said, uh, who told you you're wrong? All the girls in my Bible study. And I sat there for a minute. <laughs> and I said, uh, these girls in your Bible study. She said, yeah, I said, they wouldn't just happen to be all blonde-haired, blue-eyed Norwegian types, would they? <laughs> and she goes, how did you know? <laughs> I said, sweetheart, these are people all their lives, they don't yell and scream. And they're raising families that never yell and scream. And, you know, well, some do, some do. <laughs> Here's a blonde in front of they scream. But I'm just saying, I mean, it's, you know, I've been in Norway. I've been in Sweden. These people have their personalities surgically removed at birth. I mean, they are... They, they, it's very calm and nobody raises their voice, you know. So, you know, and then you go to Italy and people are screaming constantly. I felt so much more comfortable in Italy. <laughs> and everybody, I like this place. Everybody's, those are the people who like each other, are screaming at each other. Bless my soul. I loved it. All right. Way up north, they didn't do this. Oh, I was just teasing her, you know. I said, look, sweetheart, you come from a culture that in your home, you guys probably all, that's, your parents all yelled. She said, yeah. So that's fine. Just don't curse. Don't use God's name in vain. Don't overdo it. We want to yell, yell. I don't say you can't yell. 
She felt quite free after that conversation. (laughs) Her poor kids got yelled at. It's good. So anyway, I... (laughs) What was I talking about? Oh, unrealistic expectations. If you think we should never yell, we should never argue, and there's people like that, and if you marry somebody like that, don't yell at them. You know, and this happens, a lot of couples, they come from one that the whole, everybody in their family yells, and we all wind up marrying people who never yell. Right, extremes. My family, you should see my family. They're nuts, they're all certifiably insane. I'm the normal one in my family. And then I marry the redhead. Okay? These people never talk to each other. They never talk to each other. I kid you not. I must have been married to her for almost 15 years before her father said more than four words to me. Oh, you walk in the house and just everybody just... (laughs) Just everybody was mad all the time, but never talked. Nobody ever talked, you know? So you can see it was quite a shock coming into my world. So uh, that was fine. You know, you marry into that world, you can't go yelling and screaming at your spouse. Well, that's where I was raised. Well, you married someone who didn't, you got to work again. That's all about working stuff out. <laughs> the point is that this idea that a true marriage, nobody has issues with anything, is insane. Of course you're going to have issues. And my personal gripe is I think a lot of these so-called marriage seminars and marriage ministries and stuff, and you listen to Focus on the Family, which I'll be on this week, by the way. I am. What is it, the 26th or something? Turn it in. They have them. It's on the local Christian station here, right? You'll hear your wonderful pastor on Focus on the Family. Whoop-de-doo. All right, so, uh, you know, and, and everybody should just love each other and walk in the peace of Christ. And I know what they're trying to do, but sometimes they make things worse by giving such this perfect thing that when you have your normal issues, you think you have a terrible marriage. And you don't. You have a normal marriage. You know? And that's why I tell, especially single girls, oh, good Lord. You know, marriage was not designed to make you happy. (laughs) It's not. I tell single people all the time, listen to me, if you're a lonely, empty, miserable soul, for the love of God, stay single. (laughs) You know, because you getting married isn't going to fix anything. So be happy in the first place. Marriage is about two people doing life together. It's better two than one. The Bible teaches that. But it doesn't say that they're supposed to meet all the emotional needs of your heart and soul. <laughs> I was on Focus on the Family once, <laughs> being interviewed by this lady. Pastor, don't you think a man should meet all the emotional needs of his wife? I said, no. <laughs> and she went, what? <laughs> I mean, she was shocked. I said, come on, there's not a man on earth designed to meet all the emotional needs of a woman. Or some people are so miserable, they get married and she sticks a straw in his brain, sucks the life out of him. <laughs> He's going, ah! Say, my husband doesn't like to talk to me. Well, but I got things I got to talk about. Get some girlfriends, good grief. Anyway, what he's saying, everybody's got this thing that they want and they expect, and when they don't get it, they go crazy. And so much of what I deal with in dealing with couples is mainly just dealing with unrealistic expectations. You're different, get over it. Okay? You're different. You got different families. You got different temperaments. You different genders. You got different body parts. You got all everything's different, for heaven's sakes. Those differences tend to draw us towards each other. Like a slow moving car wreck. <laughs> <laughs> we start out, oh, 
turns into, ah, you know. It's fine. Don't kill each other. Work it out. If you need to come, we'll talk to you. But just relax. Anyway. Then he says, well, you, uh, you don't have what, uh, you don't have because you don't ask God. And then when you ask, you do not receive. Oh, this is radical. Because his half-brother, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, said, ask and you will receive. Because, I mean, at some point, you have to understand, Jesus, the Son of God, never had sin, never had... He always thought and felt the most righteous things. It would have never entered his mind that people would pray asking for things they shouldn't be asking for. It didn't take long before Jesus left and James comes along and goes, yeah, you don't actually get everything that you ask for. <laughs> what? I thought Jesus said, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you ask right, you receive. The problem is some, <laughs> some of you are not asking right when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you might spend what you get on your pleasures. And then, and then he starts to hammer them about their pleasures. Actually, I told, uh, I was talking to Betts today, I think Randy too or something, I was, I'm working on a sermon, I'll give you a sneak preview. But uh, entitled, uh, Don't Just Pray for People. I didn't say don't pray for people. I said don't just pray for people. Listen to them. Someone comes to you and says, I need prayer for something. Just don't go off prayer. I believe there are millions of prayers that come out of people's mouths and just drop to the floor because there are so, they're just not based in reality. I touched on this a little bit last week, but I mean, you'd be stunned. Ask people questions. People come to me, ask me, Pastor, I need help for this stuff. I ask questions because I want to know. You know, like the lady who said, you know, pray for my husband. He, he won't let me read the Bible to him. Well, you know what most people would have done? They said, oh, Lord, let's pray right now. Oh, Lord, we pray for this hard-hearted husband that you open up. You know, and we go through the whole prayer thing. But I always ask questions. In fact, I was with a guy, and he's getting ready to pray. I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> you look really shocked. I said, your husband won't let you pray, read the Bible to him. That's right. So what do you mean he won't let you read the Bible to him? Well, he won't do it. He gets really mad. Well, let me ask you. Are you reading the parts of the Bible that show how much God loves him? Are you reading parts of the Bible that show what a failure he is as a man? She goes, the second one. <laughs> well, I'm not praying for your husband. Good grief. Are you there? Are you listening to me? Now, if you would have been praying for the husband, I think those prayers don't go anywhere because we're not, ask questions. Good night. Oh, I got a list of stories, man. I, there's some, there's some powerful ones. I want to be careful. I don't say who's here. <laughs> I try to change the names and stuff, you know, but, you know, pray, you know, pray, pray for me. We're going through a horrible time financially. It's just, it's just horrible. Well, most people would what? You just start praying. Lord, we pray prosperity and you pour out the windows of heaven and answer their prayer and we're trusting God for, I always go, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean you're having a hard time financially? What's wrong? Well, uh, our 30-year-old son that's still living with us in the house uh, keeps spending all his money foolishly and he likes to gamble. And we keep giving him the money to do it. And it's really hurting us financially. Okay. How about you stop doing that? Kick him out of the house. You know, let me pray for you now that you'll start standing up and doing the right thing. Of course you're having a hard time financially. Financially. 
like the lady, Pastor, pray for me. I'm really struggling coughing. Doctor says, I got a cough problem. I'll go, why? Well, I, oh, oh, coughing, and, and, and I don't have hardly any money for, for, for groceries. And I'm having a real hard time financially. Well, why are you coughing so much? Well, I, I smoke two and a half packs of cigarettes a day. You mean those really expensive cigarettes that you're buying constantly? <laughs> that gives you a hard time buying your groceries? Yeah, could you pray God will bless me? No. No. I'm going to pray you stop smoking. And let's see if we can't get you some help to stop smoking. And do you see what I'm saying? If you really start finding out what's going on with people, your pastor, pray for me, because my, my family, they're all at war with me, and they're all mad at me, and they're all coming against me, and I just know it's the enemy, just the devil coming against me. I would pray that God... Okay, why are they mad at you? Well, you know, one of our rich relatives died and we're fighting over the money. And, and I really feel it's God's wills that I get all the money. <laughs> this is what people do. You'd be shocked if you just ask some questions. Don't just pray for people, ask questions. If nothing else, you can pray for the right thing. Pray for that person. How about we pray for you not to be so selfish? How about you pray that you just give the whole family the money and you don't take any of it? Whoa, that's not the kind of prayer that they want to hear. Because, you know, anyway, it's just interesting. After Jesus teaching that God will give you whatever you ask for to prayer, James comes along and goes, well, not really quite right. Because people are praying for the wrong motives, the wrong reasons. You know? Uh, Pastor, I'm having horrible headaches. Why? Because I go to, home, go to bed drunk every night. <laughs> okay, I'm going to pray your headaches get worse. Okay? That's what I will do. I'm not kidding. Stop it. You're killing yourself. Talk to people. Don't be afraid to engage people. It'll be a fun sermon. You'll enjoy it. I'll preach it. I heard this already. I'll get them to start walking out. <laughs> Give me a few weeks to work it out. I'll... Oh, I'm out of time. Okay. <laughs> I'm done. We'll pick it up here where uh, he starts challenging them. The reason that God isn't answering their prayers is because they're being so stinking selfish. And they just want what they want when they want it. And then he gets on them about that. And then, uh, and then we're almost done with James. It's pretty short. Yeah, another page here. And then we'll go back into uh, Acts and pick it up and we'll, we'll go along from there. All right? Y'all having fun? All right, good. We're done. God bless you. See ya.